Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, as always, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. David Bjorklund. He's professor of psychology at Florida Atlantic University. And today we're going to talk about his new book, How Children Invented Humanity, the Role of Development in Human Evolution. So, Dr. Bjorklund, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. On the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I greatly appreciate it. Okay, great. So, uh, okay, I think that I've already somewhat asked you this question last time, but since we're going to talk about uh, the sort of interaction between development and evolution, where does development fit uh, into, or how does development fit into the larger picture of evolution? Well, very well, I think counter to the way many biologists, or perhaps most biologists, view development for much of the 20th century. Um, in the early days of evolutionary theory, uh, early Darwinism, even pre-Darwinism, uh, development played a very important role. Embryology played a very important role. But with the, uh, the uh, new synthesis, the modern synthesis, integrating Darwinian theory with um, Mendelian theory, the role of development seemed irrelevant. Development was an epiphenomena um, because what happened during the lifetime of the individual could not affect the germ cells and thus couldn't affect evolution. But with the, I guess, rediscovery of, uh, in the terms of evo-devo, evolutionary developmental biology, uh, development suddenly became very important again. It is changes in development of members of a species that provide the raw material for, for natural selection. Um, and this Evo Devo has really given a new dimension to evolutionary theory. And I think most people who have kept up with things uh, recognize this now. I don't think development is no longer an outsider. And I think this is true for psychological development as, as well as physical development. Uh, the species has changed because plasticity, flexibility in the behavior and cognition and neurology of our species and other species as well uh, provides the raw material uh, for natural selection to work. Mm -hmm. So I asked you the question in a particular way. I asked you how does development fit into the larger picture of evolution, but is evolution really the larger picture? Is that the correct way of thinking about it? Well, <laughs> It all depends on what question you want to answer, of course. Um, and I think if you're interested, of course, in how the species became the way it is, how we became human, uh, evolution is the right question and development is part of the right answer, only part of it. Um, if uh, you want to look at how we became, become the adults we become, uh, then development certainly plays a very important role. But we also have to keep in mind evolution is not irrelevant by any means because adults are, are adapted to our uh, environments as well or were adapted to our ancient environments. And uh, we have to keep, we, we don't want to forget the adult. Um, I've been spending a lot of time over the years emphasizing the important role of development and don't forget infants and children and the role they played in development. I don't want to take it to the extreme and say, you know, infancy and childhood are all that matter. You know. 
the infancy and childhood prepares us in many ways for the adults we will become. And that has been shaped by natural selection and evolutionary forces as well. And a lot of, a lot of those forces are operating early on in development. Young organisms, particularly young humans, are sensitive to early environmental conditions. We are our most plastic or pliable or changeable during these early stages of development. And thus we can um, uh, modify our, our developmental trajectory uh, as a function of current environmental factors in anticipation of future ones. It's not having a crystal ball. It's not saying evolution, natural selection knows where the organism is going. But if we can be sensitive, if organisms can be sensitive to early environmental conditions, uh, they can modify their development if they have the plasticity to essentially anticipate what future environments are going to be like. Sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes future environments aren't like early environments and there are mismatches there, but oftentimes it's been right. Yeah, we're going to talk about mismatches later on in the interview. Um, so with evolutionary theory, does it replace other older theories of human development or does it simply complement them? I'd like to think it complements them. Um, I think you can be a developmentalist and study human development without studying evolution, you know, if you without taking into consideration, but I think when you do, you're missing uh, uh, much of the richness uh, of human development. Uh, I think it certainly it complements an understanding of human development. Um, how, our, how did our species evolve to become the species we became? Why might our behaviors be adaptive? How are, are we different from other, other species? What evolutionary theory does is provide you with some behaviors that are apt to be important. It, it focuses you on, on important behaviors, important aspects of development uh, that are associated with survival, that are associated with understanding the social and physical world, and in, in later ages are associated with mating and parenting. These are important aspects of behavior, of development, of what it means to be human, an evolutionary theory points you to what these important um, variables, aspects uh, of, of life might be. Uh, so with an evolutionary perspective, you, you answer in, in somewhat the why question. Why do we evolve like this? Why might this have been important? And I think that provides a richness to an understanding of development and adulthood for that matter. Yeah, I was just thinking about Nico Timbergen's four questions and perhaps that's one of the ways we would want to look at the integration between evolution and development because development, if we focus on the more, more of the more proximate aspects of it, we are answering perhaps questions like the ontogeny and how a particular, um, in this case, mental mechanism functions. And uh, with an evolutionary perspective, we also bring to the table more of an ultimate explanation to things like answering a, a question surrounding its uh, phylogeny and also the function it serves. I fully agree, I fully agree with that. I think Tenbergen was, was right on target there. We have to look at all these various aspects of, of development, the proximal as well as the distal explanations, ontogeny as, as well as phylogeny, what function does it play. On top of that, 
is the integration of ontogeny and phylogeny. Uh, looking at the phylogeny, the evolution of a species to understand an animal's behavior is very important, as is looking at its ontogeny. But we keep have to keep in mind that our ancestors also developed. And it was changes in the development of our ancestors, of any species' ancestors, uh, that played an important role uh, in its uh, subsequent phylogeny, subsequent evolution. Mm -hmm. So it's right. taking Tinberg's, Tinbergen's approach maybe one step further. Mm -hmm. Right. So by studying child development, can we learn more about the kinds of selective pressures we were subject to during our evolutionary history? Well, I think we can in a, in, to a, in a limited sense. Um, one, of course, we can't go back and know precisely what our ancient environments were like and, and what the answer you typically get on this question is, well, we have our hunter-gatherer, contemporary hunter-gatherer cultures, and this is the best guess what our ancient environments were like. True, mm -hmm. I, I fully agree with that. However, uh, infancy in particular and early childhood are very similar, more similar across cultures and across species than any other time. The older we get, uh, the more different we are between cultures and between species. So there's a lot of sort of biological basis, canalization, if you will, uh, to early aspects of development. And these are some of the aspects that all cultures, all animals had to solve. Early attachment, how do infants become attached, uh, mammals in particular, primates in particular, uh, to their parents to foster survival? What, what are the conditions that the infants have to face? What are conditions and situations the parents have to face? And how much do I invest in these infants or not? What happens with weaning? What happens when a second child comes along? These are things that are similar across cultures. Different cultures have evolved, developed certain uh, different alternatives to them. But because of the similarities of individuals early on in development between cultures and even between species, we can get an idea of what the basic demands and pressures were on infants and their parents and other members of the culture. And uh, I think that does give us some greater insight into what some of the pressures were like and some of the conditions were like for our early ancestors. Mm -hmm. And in comparison to other animals, and in this case, the closer ones are the other primates, we have an extended period of development, right? Yes, we do. Uh, the human uh, ex extension of development uh, is really an extension of the primate pattern in general, but we just take it to a real extreme. And um, part of this is long-lived species need a lot of time to learn things. If you, you know, and so you need a relatively big brain to do it. And so uh, part of our just extended lifespan is is a primate uh, typical uh, feature. Humans do exaggerate this. And the, the best explanation of the one that I favor and the one that I think is probably most popular right now is not for just learning per se, which of course it was, we have to learn the technologies, tool use, but because we became increasingly social. Our sociality is, yes, an extension of great ape sociality, but an extension beyond that. Uh, we live in uh, greatly diverse cultures. The rules of cultures uh, have to be particularly specifically learned. 
Uh, we do live a long time, and so we have to understand relationships, form relationships, and see how they're going to change um, uh, across time. And because of the complexity of human social relationships, the need to compete and cooperate, both sides of the coin here, uh, is uh, sort of it's a social brain hypothesis. Um, and uh, Alexander Humphreys, Dunbar, you know, sort of most po popularized that uh, in earlier decades, um, is the explanation I like anyway. Uh, for the extended uh, period, uh, extended lifespan uh, and period of development for humans. With much of that important stuff occurring early on in life, the even extension of infancy, um, not really an extension of infancy if you consider infancy time to weaning, chimps are actually weaned a bit later than, than, than humans are, but we are born with a bigger brain right away and we spend the first, uh, um, we would normally be, if we follow the chimp pattern, still in utero while the brain is developing very rapidly. Um, this happens post-utero uh, for uh, post-birth for, for humans. It's, a it, it's still a stage of infancy, but it's a different stage compared to what chimps experience because of the richness of social and physical environments that this developing brain is experiencing even then. Uh, the period of childhood, which Barry Bogan suggests is actually unique to humans between weaning and the juvenile period, has associated with it uh, the beginning about three years of age, you know, certainly two years of age anyway, uh, language, symbolism, we see symbolic play coming in, uh, we see the um, increased social cooperation and collaboration coming in, maybe a little bit later, but the beginnings of it here, in-group, out-group distinctions. Uh, our sociality is, is, um, is, is changing quite, quite substantially. And Bogan proposes that uh, adolescence is also a, a unique human stage, this period between the end of the juvenile period, the beginning of adulthood, which I guess all many species have to some extent. It's exaggerated in humans uh, and a, a period that's associated with increased attention to sexuality, to, to mating, to becoming, to becoming adults. But you need a little more time. Humans need a little more time to, to become successful adults. And this period of adolescence gives it to them. Increased risk-taking, uh, separation from parents, etc. So uh, humans' extended lifespan, um, in one sense, is an extension uh, of, of primate uh, life history, uh, but in an, it's done in um, almost a qualitatively different way with these, starting with infancy and uh, so much brain, rapid brain development occurring postnatally, and then uh, with uh, the, the sort of introduced period of childhood and uh, even an extended juvenile period, uh, and then adolescence. Mm -hmm. So are humans a neotenous species, and what does that mean? Well, neoteny is, is literally the retention of infantile or juvenile characteristics into uh, uh, later development, um, or uh, the, the retention of uh, characteristics from an earlier for ancestors into, into later development. Um, and 
for a long time, there have, been, there have been theorists who propose that humans are a very neotenous species in the sense that many aspects of human development are retarded is, is, uh, or slowed down. Um, and this seems counterintuitive at first because we are, of course, more advanced, at least we think of ourselves that way, certainly intellectually uh, relative to, to other species. Um, but how did we get that way? Uh, neoteny is one example uh, of a form of heterochrony, which is differential, which is genetic control of, of aspects of development, differential timing of a development of different modules of development, if you will. Um, so uh, there, if you think of a body, including the brain, as being different components or modules, uh, they can develop at certain at different rates. We don't develop like a balloon, everything as it expands, developing at the same time. Different aspects of, of our physical development as well as our psychological, that is, and thus brain development, uh, occur at different rates. So heterochrony refers to the, these differential rates, especially relative to an ancestor. Some rates may be faster, some may be slower relative to an ancestor, some aspects may be extended uh, early aspects of development extended later into development. And neoteny is a form of pediamorphous or, or slowing. I'm using the term a little more generally uh, for, for slowing of development or retardation of development. And the example I gave about the human brain, infant brain, uh, is often viewed as a neotenous characteristic. Yes, the brain is bigger. Uh, it's uh, than that of a chimpanzee and presumably our, our ancient ancestors. But uh, it got that way first by producing the extending the period in which neurogenesis occurs prenatally. So we have more brain cells than chimpanzees do to begin with. And then extending the rate of growth that is rapid during the prenatal period for all primates into postnatal life. Um, the explanation for this usually is human brains were just getting too big. They couldn't fit through the uh, birth canal of a bipedal woman. So babies had to be born early to, to prevent <laughs> not being born at all. Uh, and this but the, then the rapid rate of growth of, of, of synaptogenesis, increasing the size of neurons, um, continued into postnatal life. So this is often considered a, a neotenous characteristic. Uh, other physical features of, of humans uh, seem to re reflect a slowing of development. Our facial characteristics, we, we look very babyish compared to um, uh, adult chimpanzees or, or, or other species. Uh, so there's a whole list of, of, of neotenous characteristics. Uh, so this has caused some theorists um, Volk back in the early in the 20s, a, a Dutch anatomist, probably most, a most extreme example. Um, Montague in the middle of the last century, probably the, the most ardent proponent of neoteny, uh, to suggest that humans are indeed a neotenous characteristic. We are slow de develop developers. That's a bit of ex an exaggeration. I think uh, neoteny plays a very important role. I, uh, sort of a fan of, the, of humans as a neotenous spe uh, species, but it's not all we are. Uh, many aspects of development are actually act, can be thought of as accelerations relative to some of our ancestors, others uh, more delayed. 
Uh, it is a mosaic pattern, but this is true of many species in general. So this is nothing unique to humans. What seems to be unique to humans is the slow rate of development relative to other species, retaining some of these infantile juvenile characteristics later on into childhood, some adulthood. For example, there's some evidence that brain plasticity, neuronal plasticity, uh, which is which peaks in chimpanzees in childhood, doesn't peak in, in humans until adolescence or into adulthood. We retain this sort of juvenile features of plasticity at the neuronal level. You talk, think of it as neuronal uh, neoteny. Uh, so at some very important levels, we are a neotenous species. Um, and I, I, I emphasize that because it is counterintuitive. I don't want us to think as, as Bolt did of thinking of, of humans as sort of eight fetuses that have grown up. It's a really not a very pleasant thought. Um, but um, as, uh, as a species that has become the species we are, physically and behaviorally through uh, a slowing of development and a retention of early features. Let, let me mention one thing that, that, I, that is a, sort of a recent discovery of mine in the last couple of years is Wrangham's theory about uh, neoteny playing a role in our uh, sociality in the sense that it, we have self-domesticated ourselves by becoming less reactively aggressive uh, we've retained a sort of a non-aggressive in terms of reaction, you know, got to respond right away. Um, and this reduction in reactive aggression permitted us to get along in relatively large groups of individuals that chimpanzees just can't do. We sort of self-domesticated ourselves. What's controversial or interesting about Wrangham's ideas is that we still have a lot of proactive aggression. We can think about it and we can actually punish and his idea was we, we probably executed uh, people who broke some of these rules. Uh, so we don't lose our aggression, just some of our reactive aggression through this process of, of neoteny or, or pediomorphous, as Rangham refers to it. Mm -hmm. So uh, do humans have high levels of uh, behavioral plasticity in comparison to other species? We seem to, at least broadly defined. Uh, there are limits, of course. Other species you can think of as being very plastic and that they really can change a lot, but in very limited context. Uh, for humans, at least for cognition, for learning, for brain-based aspects, we are a highly plastic species. Uh, all primates, all mammals, I, I think, are most plastic brain-wise, changes of behavior, cognition, early in development, uh, we lose that plasticity. We all do uh, when we age, as we age. Humans do as well. Your brain is not as plastic as it was uh, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, mine <laughs> is even less so. Uh, but we as adults still retain much of this plasticity, uh, more so than other species. This plasticity is very important uh, for animals that are dependent on learning. So you see this high level of plasticity in, in other long-lived, uh, particularly social animals. It is um, critical if you're going to be living as a, members of a species in diverse environments or with cl great climate change. You don't know exactly what your environment is going to be. 
uh, you're a generalist, uh, this requires being able to change, being able to identify or be responsive to changes in environments. Humans, I think human plasticity, particularly early in development, is, is really the key to uh, humans, the story of humanity, uh, uh, in a sense. So yes, uh, humans are highly plastic species. Um, uh, uh, neurologically, uh, it's not unlimited. Uh, it does decrease with age, uh, and, but it's, um, it has permitted us to be the species that we are. Mm-hmm. But by us having higher levels of the, of behavioral plasticity, does that mean that we respond more or are more permeable to environmental influences than other species? Well, I, th- I think it does. Now, there are, of course, constraints, you know, on plasticity. The, the, we are not infinitely plastic. Uh, an infinitely plastic species would be an example of extreme environmentalism. You know, we if we believed in that, we here we have the uh, uh, the human brain, which is just a nice brain that's a good general learner, and it will it will mold itself to whatever ex- environmental experiences it has. We are highly plastic, but the plasticity is constrained. Uh, some things are easier or more possible for us to learn than others. Uh, we are more apt to develop in X direction versus Y direction uh, than others. Uh, it's certainly not unlimited. Um, the uh, If it were, you wouldn't see the the uniformity we see in the species. Most of us develop in a species-typical way because we inherit a species-typical genome plus a species-typical environment. Now, that species-typical environment can vary quite widely, so we can have people growing up in very different cultures who become very different types of adults, but we, we are still demonstrably human. You know, it's, it's, it, it's uh, not, not extremes. The extremes we can see when we have extreme environmental limits of, of plasticity, we can see when we have extreme environmental conditions. Uh, these are unfortunately usually negative, children being in, in stultifying institutions. Uh, that what we saw with, with Romanian institutionalized children uh, mm-hmm. several decades ago, these are now, people are now adults in their 30s and, and uh, we, we can see the long-term effects of this. At the real extremes, we have the cases of feral children uh, which always have to be taken with a with a grain of salt because of, uh, well, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but the fact that human children can be raised seemingly, at least for some period of time, by wolves or monkeys and still stay alive shows an amazing degree of plasticity. The fact that once they are discovered and brought back into humanity, into civilization, that they show relatively little ability to, to, to switch, to become fully... Um, civilized, so to speak, shows the limits of it. Now, these are real extremes, um, but if you take a look at the variety of parenting practices, for example, across cultures, uh, you can see that children in very child-friendly, child-loving cultures uh, versus cultures that are quite <laughs> view children as should be seen and not heard, children owe it to their parents, and uh, it can be quite harsh, they all grow up many of them grow up to be, anyway, um, functional members of their society. You don't have to be super parents in any species general way to raise successful children. 
So this shows us there's a good deal of plasticity. It also shows that it's hard to make some of these changes later on in life. It's not unlimited. Mm -hmm. Is the concept of innateness important or relevant for us to understand the development of certain psychological traits? Because, I, I mean, I've already talked on the show with different people and it seems that different people are, have different definitions of what is innate. I mean, some people mean that, by innate that it has to be present at birth. Others, I mean, not necessarily at birth, but they say that it, have, it has to come online in a particular stage of development that is the same across all people. So is this a useful way of thinking about things? Well, I think it can be, but you've got to be cautious. Um, Many developmentalists, including myself, really don't like the term or the idea of innateness, partially for the reasons you just suggested. It means different things to different people. And using the word implies, I think we know more than what we really know. You're not sure how the person is using it uh, for, the, for one thing, and whether it is president birth, whether it is, I think, more useful definition, it, it develops in a species typical way, timing wise across situations, that can be more useful, but it can still imply more than, than, the, than what's intended. I prefer to look, think about species typical characteristics, species typical features that will evolve or rather will develop uh, in pretty much the same way at pretty much the same time across all individuals of the species, given a species typical environment. This way, you're not saying it's all in the genes, it's all in the environment, it's in somehow an interaction of genes and environment. But if a child does not receive a species typical uh, experience and thus doesn't develop in a species typical way, does that child not have instincts? You know, uh, if you if you really believe in innateness, wh where is it? Uh, so you need this combination, this interaction of genes and environment experience and, and biology uh, to understand normal human development. Uh, and I think you can, using the word innate too freely, sometimes um, can mask which, what is really going on. If you say something is innate, it implies anyway to, to most people. Uh, it's there. There's nothing you can do about it. It's in the genes. And we, and we understand it now. And maybe you don't. Uh, maybe you don't understand it as, as, as well as you could. It implies more knowledge than you probably actually have. So I think people use it in well-intentioned ways. But because there are different definitions of it, uh, I think uh, Thinking about species typical characteristics is a, a better way of, of, of expressing these things that we sometimes use the word innateness for. Mm -hmm. Is behavioral genetics relevant to our discussion? I mean, do you also take into account discoveries from behavioral genetics and maybe individual variation when it comes to these psychological traits? Oh, heavens, yes. Um, Genes are important, <laughs> genes are critical. And behavioral genetics uh, looks at the relationship between genes uh, and, and the expression of those genes and, and behavior. So uh, yes, I think any account that uh, 
that ignores behavioral genetics or genetics in general is, is, is missing an important part of the story. But um, you've got to be careful because uh, you don't want to give all the potency to genes themselves, which I think some uh, people who read the genetic literature or even do the genetic research are apt to do, probably unintentionally. Genes are always expressed in a context. Mm -hmm. uh, that context alters the expression, can alter the expression of genes. The uh, uh, individual differences in genes, different alleles associated with different outcomes, sometimes only make a difference in certain environments. Uh, knowing that is very important. Knowing the, the genes behind a certain behavior or a certain physical characteristic is very important. But understanding that those same alleles will be expressed differently in different environmental contexts is, is critical as well. And then this brings us to the new field of epigenetics. I say it's new, it's been around for a long time, but um, biologists are now recognizing the importance of epigenetic factors, uh, particularly the process of, of, of methylation in modifying gene expression as a function of experience. It's not just epigenetic factors around the earliest early stages of development, but it's epigenetic factors continuing throughout life, turning on, turning off genes, affecting how much um, gene products, proteins essentially are produced uh, by a gene under certain context. So these are um, uh, really exciting trends. If I were gonna start over again, uh, I might, I want to have a career in studying behavioral epigenetics. Uh, I think it's it's really going to be an exciting uh, interaction between experience, uh, genetics, and give us greater insight into the nature of development itself. Um, so I, the answer to your question is, I, I guess, yes, behavioral genetics are very important, but they have to be considered in the context of essentially the rearing environment or the environment in general of the organism. Mm -hmm. So a very important part of human childhood seems to be play. Do we know why play evolved and what are the sorts of functions that it serves? We certainly have a lot of theories about it. Um, <laughs> and play is, is something that has confounded people for, uh, for a while. One, defini one definition of play, or one characteristic definition, one feature of it, is that it's purposeless. You know, you don't do it for any real reason other than doing it itself. But no one who studies play believe it's, believes it's purposeless, <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> it has a function, maybe just not the immediate function of increasing fitness. But through play, and there's different types of play, and uh, you develop certain skills, physical skills, um, uh, social skills, we see this in all social animals. There is at least rough and tumble play, locomotor play, um, uh, chase games uh, that may be very helpful uh, and useful in developing important social skills later on for species. Animals who are prevented from playing as juveniles often are socially less competent than animals uh, that are provided opportunities for play. Um, in humans, uh, physical play with objects seems to be very important for tool use. We see tool use in other great apes as well. Uh, 
and chimpanzees, uh, orangutans, some gorillas, some, and they show object play uh, is juveniles. This, this seems very important in humans as well, learning the affordances of objects, uh, which tends to be fostered discovering properties that can be used as in, in, uh, with artifacts, particularly tools. But in humans, the, the prototypic play is sociodramatic play. Um, with involves counterfactual thinking, pretend. And this seems to be very critical in humans. You don't see another species. The closest you get in um, chimpanzees, for example, maybe some hints of it where uh, there's been observations of um, uh, chimps carrying a log around and sort of pretending it's a baby. There's a, you got to read a lot into that. You see some evidence of what looks like sociodramatic or pretend play in some enculturated chimpanzees, human rear chimpanzees, but it's not species typical. In humans, it's species typical. I have a three-year-old granddaughter right now who's just starting this sociodramatic play, who's playing with her horses and pretending, little, you know, little horses. And it's just wonderful to see. She's right on schedule. Uh, this is what three-year-olds begin to do, sometimes a little earlier, sometimes a little later, and then eventually you get social interactions. This sociodramatic play, this counterfactual thinking, these aren't real horses, they're not real, horses aren't talking to one another. Um, I'm not really a space person, a space, an astronaut, but we're, I'm pretending to be, um, is an expression of our symbolic abilities. Uh, and helps us deal with counterfactual thinking, thinking, acting as if something's true when it's not, uh, which um, seems to be a very important uh, human skill. And I think when it's done in the social context, you're developing social relations as well, having to anticipate what someone else is thinking, uh, how it fits with what you're thinking, what you're supposed to do, what they're supposed to do, etc. So. Uh, the, there are lots of theories of, of why play is found, mainly in social animals, developing physical skills in a relatively safe environment, developing motor skills and exercise, again, in a relatively safe environment. And for humans, sociodramatic play, exercising and developing our symbolic skills and social cognitive skills. And we find there's recent evidence the last decade or so that the more children engage in sociodramatic play, it tends to have facilitating effects on things like executive function, language development, if they have a, if they use a lot of language in their play. They're correlations. Uh, there may be other explanations for them, uh, but they are, they play seems to play be an, have an important role in a lot of so human social and cognitive functions. Mm -hmm. So, does, is play also connected to learning? Oh, yes. If you look at um, uh, particularly traditional cultures, there's very little explicit teaching in, uh, in traditional cultures. That is, adults teaching uh, children. There's some, but, but not a heck of a lot. And for me, at first, learning this, this is, but with a we're the teaching species, you know, this is natural for us. This is why we, we're, we, we do so well, <laughs> you know, we've mastered culture and, and, and inventions. We teach one another. 
Hunter-gatherers don't do a lot of this. When it's done, it's more apt to be done older children to younger children. There's a recent study just confirming this or demonstrating this uh, again in, in a couple of traditional groups. Um, a lot of learning goes on during play. So a lot of it is social learning, a lot of it is learning in traditional cultures, uh, adult skills like hunting or gathering or cooking. It's done during play, younger children playing with older children primarily, sometimes adults playing with, with, with young children. Um, and of course, observational learning, which is not play, which is just learning by observing, and that seems to be very important as well. But play, um, a lot of things are discovered during play, you know, in the process of discovery, manipulating things. Oh, look what this does. Uh, I've learned something new about this thing, uh, uh, this contraption. Um, but also social relationships, um, so, and again, some very important um, survival skills. So uh, play still plays a role uh, in learning in modern cultures. Uh, certainly it's less of a role than it did for our ancestors, seemingly hunter-gatherers, um, where it seems to be more primary, but, but play has been and continues to be an important learning device, uh, learning mechanism. For our species. Mm -hmm. So uh, later in the interview we're going to come back to evolutionary mismatch but would you say that nowadays in modern industrialized societies children uh, don't play as much as they should and that perhaps brings about some issues that we're seeing? Well they I, I think they I think you're right um, they don't play as as they should, so to speak. I, I shouldn't use the word should here. Uh, but uh, certainly um, formal education, formal schooling, especially, you know, sit down in chairs and, and listen to the teacher. Um, there's very little play in, uh, in school compared to what uh, they used to be. Uh, schools, the last three or four decades, in the United States anyway, have been getting rid of recess where children had breaks uh, that just the break itself and you know, getting rid of some, using some energy um, may have benefits, uh, particularly on inhibition abilities, but also opportunities to play. So formal schooling, formal education is, is reducing um, children's opportunity to play. And then uh, there's a tendency, we, we see it again strongly in the United States, but you see it in other Western countries as well, uh, or weird cultures. Uh, children are playing less on their own, free play. You know, go out and, when I was a kid, my parents would often say, go outside and play. Uh, they didn't tell us what to play, just the inf inference was, go find some other kids and do something. Play, you know. Um, you're seeing less and less of that. Um, uh, there are play dates that parents schedule. Uh, there are four more formal uh, games, you know, you're going to be part of Little League or Pee Wee basketball or, or whatever, informal games where someone else makes the rules. This is play as well, but it's 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 reduces the amount of freedom they have. Uh, children will get a chance to, to sort of make rules. Piaget said moral development really occurs when children have to interact with one another. They have disagreements. You know, this is have to solve them. Uh, this is a uh, normal part of development. So in, in industrialized countries, uh, we're seeing less of this type of play. Kids are on their tablets a lot. They are playing, 
Um, they may be playing more in the recent decade just because of, uh, of, of uh, the video games. Uh, and some of that is social, and you know, you, you're, you're playing with other children, other people, other players in these games. But it's not face-to-face. -face. It's not the same type of relationship you have. So, yes, I think the reduction of free play in particular is probably not a good thing um, uh, in current societies. And um, I think particularly early in development, uh, young children should be encouraged to give them the opportunity to play more. Uh, on their own, especially with other children. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Piaget, and by the way, has Piaget fallen out of fashion in developmental psychology? Or I mean, what are the kinds of things he got wrong and the ones he got right, perhaps? Well, there are probably too many things to mention about the things he got right. Um, <laughs> we take much of cognitive development uh, that Piaget gave to us sort of for granted today. Uh, Piaget studied very high level aspects of cognition in children, not the sort of lower level, almost intuitive, uh, implicit aspects that dominated adult cognitive psychology through much of the, uh, of, of the 20th century. He made it clear to us uh, that children's cognition is, the children play an active role in their own cognition, the active nature of, uh, of the child. He discovered more basic phenomena than I think any other, uh, other developmental psychologist, uh, conservation from in infancy through, uh, through adolescence. Um, his, he provided explanations for why development may change, his equilibration model, uh, for example. Um, so he, he got so much right, uh, and even if we want to disagree with the details, his, his overall description of the general nature of how children change from infancy to adolescence still feels right, uh, at, at least at, at, the, at the macro level. Now, his theory, you know, he began the theory about 100 years ago, so the fact that, you know, we're talking about a, a theorist uh, who started his career in the 1920s, and we're doing it in the 2020s, is, is still pretty impressive. Um, but things change. Uh, Piaget, uh, over in the United States anyway, and then later, I think, in, in the rest of the, uh, the world, uh, there was this conflict between Piagetian perspectives and information processing perspectives, a little more mm -hmm. mechanistic perspective. And information processing sort of caught on, and the, some people tried to integrate Piaget with information processing approaches. Others uh, saw them as, as contradictory. Uh, so there, there was that general trend. Piaget couldn't quite be explained in these new, new ways uh, as easily as, as, as before. Um, Piaget tended to over, underestimate a lot of children's abilities. Uh, infants, uh, especially using some of these new uh, uh, techniques, uh, habituation, dishabituation paradigms, uh, some of the information processing paradigms, slightly older children. Uh, children and infants have more abilities than Piaget inferred. When you look uh, closely, uh, for example, uh, they can be trained to, uh, four-year-olds, five-year-olds can be trained to conserve, which Piaget said you shouldn't. But that, that shouldn't happen. The whole nature of stages was questioned. Uh, development seems to be more continuous uh, than Piaget uh, proposed it, and less 
um, uh, homogeneous within, within a stage. Uh, so for these and, and some other reasons, Piaget became a bit out of fashion. Um, as new theories and new ways of looking at uh, development or cognitive development uh, emerged. But I haven't taken Piaget out of my, my textbook yet. I used to give him a chapter all to himself. He now shares it with others, but it's still the bulk of the chapter. Um, cognitive development can't be properly understood without looking at, at Piaget's contributions. So he is the background. His ideas, I think, are the background for much of what uh, contemporary cognitive developmentalists um, are, are studying and trying to understand today. But yes, um, there are very few people who say, well, I'm a Piagetian, and here we go. There are people who will cite Piaget and, and, and uh, his background material, uh, but he is part of our DNA, so to speak. Uh, it may not always be explicitly expressed, but uh, it's it, his ideas were the foundation for much of what uh, contemporary developmental cognitive people do today. Mm -hmm. So another question, does child development have anything to do with the evolution of culture? Well, yes, in, in, in some sense. Uh, culture First of all, you have to look at culture as evolving along with biological evolution. Uh, culture is often seen as opposed to evolution. Uh, if you have a cultural explanation, it's the antithesis of an evolutionary explanation. And that's just not right. Uh, humans, as long as there have been humans, have been cultural species. And so uh, we have to look at, at biologic cultural co-evolution. And there are theorists uh, and people who, who spent their careers doing, uh, doing just that. But within cultures, uh, within our species, you always have to contend with a, the very important issue of raising children. Uh, because humans are uh, slow developers because we are so dependent on adults for so long uh, as infants and children, there have to be cultural solutions to those problems. How do different cultures uh, handle it? Um, and uh, depending on the ecological conditions that a culture finds itself in, or maybe it's, it's, it's history, uh, there have been different solutions uh, to those problems. Um, and so knowing what an infant needs and knowing what a four-year-old, six-year-old, or 12-year-old is like as a member of a species, um, how do different cultures with different ecologies deal with these issues of keeping them alive, getting them socialized so they can become uh, functional members uh, of their society? So, uh, so yes, I think culture and evolution and development are, are certainly integrated. They, 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 you have to look at them uh, together. And there has been as you well know, uh, most of psychological research is in so-called weird cultures, you know, Western educated, industrial, uh, rich and, and democratic. And to what extent does their children growing up in Portugal or the United States reflect children growing up 
you know, uh, in in Papua New, New Guinea or the, or the Amazon, and do we care? What difference does it make? Well, it makes a difference. What characterizes us as a species versus us as members of a particular type of culture? These are important issues. Um, and so there's been an increased emphasis on studying children and development in different cultures uh, from different weird cultures with slightly different uh, cultural histories to, to the extent that that's possible, more traditional cultures. There are only a handful of true hunter-gatherer cultures left. Um, and most work with hunter-gatherers or really with former hunter-gatherers who are now usually agriculturalists or horticulturalists. Um, but these types of studies are looking at, do some of these abilities that we think are so important that we're recently discovering or, or maybe had discovered ages ago, do they develop under the same conditions in these various cultures? And when there's variation, can we explain that variation by the fact, by the ecology of a particular culture or the cultural history? So mm -hmm. it gets very Vygotsky in, in, in a sense. It integrates Vygotsky with Darwin, with Piaget, so to speak, in a, <laughs> a very broad way. Yeah, and, and talking about raising children, have mothers played an important role in our evolution? I mean, could we say that they were responsible for the evolution of certain of our ev uh, evolved psychological traits? Well, as a mammal, for all mammals, uh, saying mothers matter is sort of trivial. Of course they matter. Uh, the way mammals develop, you know, it's only its gestation and conception occur within the female. Uh, she's the only one who can uh, nurse, essentially provide nutrition for babies. Yes, other lactating females can, but it's usually the mother. So of course mothers are important. But from a broader sense, an evolutionary sense, I think they're even more important. They're more than just 50% of the DNA uh, and the, the mechanism by which babies are fed. If we go, go back to our early discussion of plasticity, uh, infants, young children are highly plastic, highly pliable, and it is changes early in life that uh, essentially alter the course of development, which provide different niches, if you will, for natural selection to occur, different characteristics. Mothers for mammals and humans for an extended period of time are the environment for these young, young infants, for these young plastic organisms. It is gonna be mother's behavior more than anything else uh, that is going to um, be the cues for, for infants and young children to change. This means the changes in maternal behavior, changes in parenting, really changes in mothering because fathers and, and most mammals, there are a few exceptions, but most mammals have really very little to do with babies and, and, and young infants. Um, it is going to be the mother's behavior uh, that is going to be the mechanism, the basis by which plasticity can be expressed in the young. So um, I, I've used research in um, with enculturated apes as an example for this, that uh, apes that are brought up by humans, uh, treated much as human babies are treated, they show, and Mike Tomasello and some of his colleagues and others uh, have done some of this work as well, uh, these enculturated young 
chimpanzees, sometimes orangutans, gorillas, um, are show more advanced social cognition than mother-reared apes. Uh, they uh, suggesting that if our ancestors with our common ancestors of the chimpanzees had the same level of plasticity and flexibility, changes in maternal behavior. And if you had a group of mothers who, who were a little more responsive in a human type way, uh, maybe engaged in, in shared attention behaviors uh, with their babies, maybe grunted more towards them, uh, used uh, vocalizations a little bit more, maybe engaged in a little more teaching than is typically done by contemporary uh, mother-reared chimps, which, which happens, but just not very frequently. These mothers could have been the mechanisms by which uh, infants could have changed, and if there are enough infants in, in a group to change, you change the selective pressures, and so these more highly social cognitive individuals could you know, be the, the beginning of evolutionary changes in the species. So yes, I think mothers are very important. Um, uh, in the sense that they provide not only the, the, the DNA, a little more DNA because of the mitochondria, but also the early environment for a highly plastic animal. Mm -hmm. So we've already talked a little bit about this earlier, but uh, talking about the new stages of development that the human species shows, like for example, childhood and adolescence, did they bring along with them new sets of psychological traits or not? Because, I mean, earlier when we were talking about stages and Piaget, one of the things you said they got we probably got wrong is that there aren't really discrete stages with uh, a set of psychological abilities that occur in that particular stage or come online in that particular stage, but they are continuous. Well, um, I may have overstated that a little bit. Let me. Okay. Um, stages are, I think, convenient fictions. Mm. Uh, they, in Piaget's sense, I don't think they behavior cognition isn't quite as homogeneous within a stage as Piaget proposed. Uh, it's more context dependent. There was a lot of, mm -hmm. in, of intra-individual differences. Piaget overstated that. Or we interpreted Piaget as overstating that. There's a lot of things we, we say Piaget got wrong with that I think we, we just interpreted Piaget <laughs> incorrectly. Nonetheless, uh, most four-year-olds behave pretty much the same. Uh, most of the time as other four-year-olds, as do most eight-year-olds. There's probably more homogeneity than an information processing contextual theory would, would suggest. So stages, development is a continuous process, but within a certain uh, age period, usually behavior is somewhat homogeneous. Sometimes they are indicated uh, by real biological changes Infancy, uh, one way of defining infancy is birth to weaning. Now, uh, weaning can occur at different ages for different members of a species, uh, but you take a look at what weaning would be like in traditional cultures, we're talking about, about three years of age. Adrenalarchy, adrenalarchy, you know, occurring, the activation of the adrenal gland sort of defines the beginning of the juvenile period. Puberty with the activation of hormones, uh, of the, uh, from uh, the sex hormones. Um, androgen, estrogen. So we can use these as, as markers to some extent, meaning stages have some 
basis in 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 biological uh, reality. Uh, so the concept of stage can't be taken as literally as it used to. With these are discontinuous, discrete times, and that there is total homogeneity within these uh, particular stages. Uh, but I think they can be useful in taking a look at what characterizes an organism or set of organisms, uh, members of a species between a particular set of ages or a particular set of biologic events, uh, weaning and adrenalarchy, uh, uh, for example, uh, that differentiate it from, on average, members of at other ages or, or other characteristics. So, um, this is trying to have my cake and eat it too. You know, stages are not real in the sense that development is continuous, but they are, you know, the convenient fictions that are the, the, the stage-like uh, activities. Uh, from Bogan's perspective and how other people have interpreted some of Bogan's work, these stages bring along with it different cognitive abilities or at least opportunities to express different cognitive abilities. Direction of causality is, is always difficult. Do these new stages bring along these cognitive abilities or because of these cognitive abilities are merging, uh, did they require the invention of new stages? I th it's gotta be a bi-directional uh, type, of, type of phenomenon. We see the increasing brain size uh, in humans and different organizations occurring um, uh, you know, over over the preschool years, new abilities, cognitive abilities emerging, and they're going to emerge for the most part in almost any kind of species typical environment, even one where play is is limited. But when children get the become three and their brain development is relatively normal, and brain development is highly canalized for the first couple of years anyway. Yes, with extreme deprivation, you don't get normal development, but in the absence of extreme deprivation, uh, eventually children are going to learn, uh, acquire a language, they're going to develop the basic symbolic skills. Uh, and if, if after 18 months of deprivation, they are, they are exposed to a species typical environment, there's a good chance that they can find reversals. After this, it's a lot tougher. Um, but once you have uh, a child, let's say three, three and a half years of age, brought up in a species-typical environment who now has these more advanced cognitive abilities. Play, for example, socio-dramatic play, gives them opportunities to exercise them, to develop them, for them to emerge, if you will, into more advanced social cognitive skills. So, and this can feed back, or could have fed back in our ancestors uh, on um, the necessity for increasing brain size, because as uh, as social complexity in, increased and the, the necessity to deal with other members of the species, uh, this produces pressure for increased brain size to handle it. So, um, you know, I like to think of, you know, for the social brain hypothesis, adding development in there as well, that uh, in animals that live in highly socially complex environments need large brains uh, to uh, develop these social, handle these social skills, but they need a long time uh, to acquire the social skills that are gonna be pertinent in their society, because especially in humans of the variability, not 
Um, we all may be moral, moral members of a species. We all do develop a sense of morality. But what that morality is, is highly dependent on culture. Uh, what the social rules are for interactions. We are all highly social members of a species, but those rules differ often greatly uh, between cultures. We need a lot of time and practice to develop these skills. So I, I think of, 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 of the social brain hypothesis involving large brain, extended period of development and social complexity interacting bi-directionally uh, across, across time and across evolutionary time. Mm -hmm. But do we know what came first? I mean, if it was our social complexity, our slow development, is there, is that the best way of thinking about it, that one thing came before the other? Well, uh, I don't think we'll ever know, because they are so hopelessly confounded. Um, the, uh, it, it's... You might think the social complexity would have come first and animals that happened to have slightly larger brains that allowed them uh, to be slightly more uh, capable within socially uh, complex environments had the advantage. Well then, is it the larger brain or is it the social complexity? So I, I, I think it's really difficult to, to, uh, to pinpoint uh, which came first. Uh, you know, I think the better way of looking at it is these are emergent properties that change over time uh, that with one factor interacting and affecting uh, the other. So at times uh, there may have been increasing pressure, greater pressure for, for brain growth at other times, greater pressure for extended period, but they are all dependent on all three of these factors uh, simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Should we also consider sex differences in development? Are there any important sex differences in human development? Well, um, I think so. Uh, this can, can get one in trouble, uh, somewhat today proposing <laughs> sex differences. Um, but uh, if you take a look at um, the fact that we're mammals, uh, there is all, in all mammals, there is greater obligatory female investment. This goes back to Trevor's parental investment theory. It goes back to Darwin eventually. Almost all things go back to Darwin. And so uh, it is not surprising that uh, some of these sex differences are associated with early attachment behaviors. Um, the effect of the uh, Kinchin schema, uh, Lorenz's babiness, you know, we, we really get like cute baby faces, we fall in love with cute babies, etc. Um, this seems to be a bit stronger in women than in men. There's even now neurological evidence that different areas of the brain sort of light up more in women than in men, and mothers for their own children than for other, other children. We shouldn't be surprised at, at, at some of these things. Uh, sex differences seem to be important in play. You see both boys and girls developing across cultures, uh, sociodramatic play beginning around three years of age. The girls' play tends to be a little more sophisticated, at least some studies find it. But what differs mainly, and you see this across cultures, uh, is the themes in the play. In boys, the themes seem to be more dominance. Uh, when I was a kid, it was cowboys and Indians, cops and robbers. Today, it's superheroes. Um, uh, and, you know, one dominating the other. 
uh, in children and girls, it tends to be more domestic related or cooperation related, mom playing house, playing teacher. Um, these are not inevitable. Uh, different environments produce different pressures for boys versus girls to go this way. There are, of course, individual differences in individual boys and girls that are probably related to biological differences, be they genes, prenatal hormone exposure. Um, so the sex differences, the fact that there are some relatively robust, consistent sex differences doesn't mean biology is destiny. These sex differences are differentially supported in some cultures and some environments versus others. Uh, they need to be supported uh, by opportunities for certain types of play, certain types of experiences. But the fact that they're there shouldn't be all that surprising. Um, the fact that we can overcome them, uh, modern society is, is uh, increasingly emphasizing egalitarianism, uh, particularly with respect to, uh, to sex differences. And uh, I think that's a very good thing. And there's nothing in our biology that says this is not possible. That there are biases for girls to develop one way and boys to develop others, given certain species typical environments, um, I think is still true. Uh, and, but it, it doesn't dictate how uh, girls or boys in a particular culture should develop. So yes, I think sex differences are present. I think they're sort of important in understanding uh, some differences we see in boys and girls and what boys, the types of play and types of activities boys and girls tend to prefer, uh, but it shouldn't be used as a um, say, well, you know, from a biological perspective, girls shouldn't be interested in engineering. Well, girls may not be as in interested in engineering on average as boys, and maybe for some biologic reasons, but some girls certainly are. And some girls will certainly have the abilities and the interests, and uh, they should certainly be encouraged. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay, so um, now talking about another important theory in, I guess, developmental and evolutionary psychology, uh, what about attachment theory? Are there any insights that we can get uh, through attachment theory that we wouldn't get from traditional, let's say, evolutionary theory and other theories in developmental psychology? Well, if you go back to the originator of attachment theory, John Bowlby, uh, mm -hmm. his was sort of a neo-Freudian theory, um, but also an evolutionary theory. Uh, so from its very origins, attachment theory was sort of mid-level evolutionary theory. Uh, so it fits in very nicely. You know, I don't, I don't see it as separate. Uh, and Bowlby noted, you know, quite accurately uh, that behavior of young animals were, uh, was directed towards um, dependency, if you will, usually with its mother, but other members of the species to stay alive. It's a survival strategy. Uh, and this is, benefits certainly babies who need, uh, particularly human babies, um, who need uh, care and attention uh, for an extended period of time in order to, to stay alive and become independent themselves. But of course the parents as well, particularly mothers, but fathers uh, as well, uh, who need to get their genes out into the next generation. You know, from, from a strictly uh, gene-centric perspective, um, 
if you have an animal who was born highly dependent, it takes a long time to develop, there has to be some way of that animal getting the attention it needs. And so children developed, and this is Trevor's term, uh, psychological weapons, I really love that concept, uh, for getting their parents, particularly their mothers, to attend to them, uh, to fall in love with them, to care for them. Parents have their own set of psychological weapons, uh, in a sense, because although it's in the child's best interest and the parent's best interest for their kids to uh, develop into functional adults themselves, survival is everything for the infant, for the child. But parents have to consider their own survival. Uh, they have to consider investing not just in this particular child, but other children they may currently have or other children they may have in the future. How much do I invest in this child right now versus his brothers and sisters or versus children I may have in the future? So it's not an equal game, so to speak. Uh, they're both involved, interested in the child's survival but the child especially so. And so parents have evolved and you see this traditional cultures, particularly in how much do I invest in my, in my child. You see it today, you know, across the globe um, as, as, as well. Um, tables can turn somewhat uh, in very affluent cultures and affluent families. We often see high levels of investment in high risk kids, children, uh, with intellectual deficits uh, in one way or another often get an awful lot of attention because their parents can afford this. In generations past, children with intellectual deficits, physical deficits, often were invested in less, um, often given over to, as wards of the state. You saw this at, at the extreme in Romania under Ceausescu. Mm -hmm. um, and parents, especially with, with fewer resources, invested in their healthy children. So these are decisions that uh, are dependent on ecological factors as well. How many, much resources do I have? Uh, but attachment theory and attachment itself <coughs> are some of the mechanisms by which children essentially try to ensure their own survival. Mm -hmm. So before we get into evolutionary mismatch, particularly in modern industrialized societies, let me just ask you another question. So comparing to other species, what would you say are the most distinct uh, social traits of humans? Well, uh, we are primates. We are social primates and share a lot of our, you know, social cognition with chimpanzees and bonobos, for example. Um, but we go far beyond them. Uh, and probably the, um, first of all, we're cultural animals. Chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, yes, have culture in the sense they pass on non-genetic information from one species to the next. Uh, but we, our cultures are much more complex, much more diverse, um, and so much variable from one culture uh, to the next. So we are very sensitive to individual differences in group behavior. We identify with our own culture uh, very well. We're artifact using species, tools. Other species use tools. We invent tools. We use tools much more so than other species. How do we learn to do this? Mainly it's through social learning. So our social learning is geared to 
both acquiring social norms, more, that what do people like me do, other members of the culture, and to acquiring um, artifact use, you know, watching how someone else uses an artifact, use a tool. Uh, our social learning, particularly over imitation, we, we, we will exaggerate, we will, we will imitate every aspect of a ritual or an action uh, on an artifact, even if it's not necessary, uh, so to speak. Uh, it's a best bet for getting, for learning these, these things. So in one sense, uh, we are a cultural and thus in-group, out-group, especially social learning animal. Other species have this, but we have it to an exaggeration. The distinction that is probably, the social cognitive distinction that's probably most outstanding is our ability to cooperate with one another. We are a cooperative species. I mentioned Rangham's idea of self-domestication. Uh, we became less reactively aggressive, aggressive so we could interact more peacefully, so to speak, with other members of the species so we could cooperate with one another. So we could work together to achieve joint goals that one of us could not achieve uh, by ourselves. We see the beginning of this, again, really about three years of age. There are little hints before it. Uh, Michael Tomasello and his colleagues have really uh, pushed this, this idea and <clears throat> lots of research uh, in children uh, and chimpanzees showing that chimps both cooperate with one another if necessary. But if two chimps are, have to work to achieve a goal, but one chimp can achieve the goal by itself, cooperation isn't necessary, they won't bother, <laughs> you know? <laughs> or they don't share if they cooperate to get a goal, to get some treats, and one chimp happens to get all three of the treats, the other chimp gets none, they don't necessarily share it. Then cooperation ends. Humans can cooperate, but when we do, we cooperate, quote, fairly. And you see this beginning certainly by three years of age. It improves uh, throughout childhood to five, six, seven years of age. And this is what re has really made us a special species, our ability to cooperate. We still compete. Uh, we're not a kumbaya species. You know, all oh, us cooperate with all of one another, and we're one big happy family. We're not. We compete a lot within a group. And perhaps, and David Sloan Wilson emphasizes this perhaps the, the most or maybe the best, we cooperate between, within a group to compete with other groups <laughs> effectively very well. And groups that, can, that cooperate with one another are more successful groups and cooperate less well with one another. So this is a group, old, it's not quite an old fashioned group selection theory, but it's a modern version of group selection theory, multi-level selection. Uh, Wilson calls it. Um, so I think these factors, um, um, social learning, uh, the notion of in-group, out-group distinctions and becoming members of groups easily, identifying who's a group member, who's not, and then adapting our behavior accordingly, and then cooperation, the ability to cooperate are not quite unique, but specially evolved and developed social cognitive abilities. Mm -hmm. Right. So in the book, you mentioned several different examples of things or behaviors that we find in modern weird societies that we could refer to as evolutionary mismatches. So, for example, you mentioned social media, hyper-individualism and formal educational practices. Could you explain that? 
Sure. Uh, let's take social media for a start. Uh, in one sense, social media is a, a really good match for our evolved characteristics. It's highly social. We're highly social. Uh, you get feedback right away. It's a match. It's almost a super sign stimulus. You know, it's why we know that there are problems with some teenagers and young adults anyway, with excessive use of social media, it's associated with higher levels of anxiety, of, of, of depression, um, not for all, but, but, but for many. Uh, why, why do we use it so much if it doesn't make us feel good? And in, in, in the few experiments that have been done, okay, you can't be on social media any more than 10 minutes a day, or when you're on it, you just comment, you don't write your own. People feel better after being off social media or not interacting with it so intimately. If it makes us feel worse, why do we engage in it? And it's because it's such a strong, almost super science stimulus. It matches our social needs. But to this extent, it can be a mismatch because it can prevent us as, uh, well, it, it can be associated with, with um, things like uh, fear of being left, left out. Uh, you know, what am I missing? Look what everyone else is doing and I'm, I'm not doing this. I've got to stay in tune. Uh, on social media, we pre pre present our best selves. Uh, you know, we can go through all kinds of photos until we find one that makes us look good. Uh, we talk about things that are, make us look good. Look how interesting my life is. Uh, and we do it ourselves, but we see what a good life everyone else is having and how come I'm not as successful, as happy, uh, as interesting as these people. So uh, it can be associated with, with some negative feelings. Of course, the cyberbullying as well. This is the mismatch. Uh, and it also can prevent us, if we do too much of it, from face-to-face -face social interactions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you see that within families, people around the dinner table, everyone's on their phone, you know, I mean, that's, that's within a family. Uh, you see adolescents, teenagers, young adults out together as a group, they're all on their phones. Uh, there's less social give and take. And to some extent, there is evidence that some children anyway, some adolescents, young adults are, are less socially skilled. Uh, you know, at, at extremes, you get pornography, uh, and people are, uh, who are young men uh, who are, have a very heavy diet of pornography, have a very difficult time developing a normal sexual relation with a real-life woman. You know, this is, this is not, I don't know what to do. This doesn't seem quite right. Um, we need to interact with others not just face-to-face -face, uh, online, but, but, but with others. Um, and we're losing some of those experiences, at least, at least some people are. Uh, so Gene Twenge has, has reviewed uh, much of this work, which he calls the iGeners, children who grow up, people who grow up with a, essentially a, a, a smartphone in their hands, and has documented a lot of the sort of the negative side of things. There are positives as well, don't get me wrong. Social media has been wonderful in many respects during the pandemic. We can stay in touch with other people that we couldn't do or shouldn't do anyway face to face. So there have been real benefits to it as well. Uh, it's not all bad news, um, but it can have uh, negative consequences when taken to extremes, which it, it sometimes is in, in, in many cultures. 
In terms of hyper-individualism, the United States is probably the most extreme on this, so you see this in other weird cultures uh, as well, particularly sort of Anglo cultures. Uh, Australia, you see it, uh, Great Britain, I think. Uh, I'm not sure how, uh, my guess is Portugal. I know Spain's a little less so, certainly, than, uh, than the U.S. Uh, yeah, I think we are closer to Spain. Yeah, so I, 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 I would think so. I think that's a good thing. Uh, at least for psychological development. We've evolved as a social species, and the emphasis in the U.S. particularly on individualism, on individual success, um, is, uh, causes you know, difficulty. We, 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 we are not encouraged to collaborate with others as, as much as we can. And then growing up, we miss some of this. And it makes us susceptible to messages and groups that says, be one of us. Uh, you know, you can believe in this. You know, look at look at all the support you have here. Uh, when that support isn't coming from more positive role models or more positive groups, uh, what they used to get in church groups and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and in 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 community situations in extended families, uh, some individuals and it turns out to be quite a lot of individuals uh, are susceptible to to I'm saying this, we'll, we'll call it misinformation. That's a popular term in the culture right now. Uh, but you share share my my goals, my beliefs, my feelings. You're one of us, and uh, I think that can have negative consequences. And then there's a whole social psychological set of findings and theories and explanations for for why people uh, buy into these um, non socially typical groups and conspiracy theories. Uh, and gangs, so to speak. There are good mm -hmm. reasons for it. Um, and I think this is a mismatch as well. In terms of education, um, I, I am particularly, I like to emphasize early education. Uh, we see, again, in the US, uh, a lot of emphasis, and this has been going on for a long time, on uh, pushing formal education back and back and back. Uh, when I was a, a child, kindergarten was optional, it was half a day, and you played. You sort of learned to get around with other children, you learned some colors, uh, maybe your alphabet, but you weren't taught to read. These things happened, you know, a year later. Uh, now, uh, we're pushing back and back to, into preschool, uh, emphasizing early learning, minimizing play. Um, and this is a mismatch with, uh, with how we evolve to learn. Don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating that we should all ch raise our children as if we're hunter-gatherers. Uh, our culture demands some formal instruction. Uh, I think it does anyway. P people like Peter Gray still would argue against that um, from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, but, um, Many of the things we try to teach young children are just not the way that we've evolved to learn them. Not that they can't learn them, but they are more apt to learn them through play, through discovery, uh, and their brains will be more ready for more formal instruction a bit later on. You see this in exposure to screens. Uh, not, I won't say that 18-month-olds are on social media, but they watch a lot of videos, DVDs, television. Um, there's what's called a, a video deficit. Uh, Rachel Barr has emphasized this a, a lot. So children 
who are taught things or read things or exposed to things on video versus face to face with real people, they can learn from them. They just don't learn from them as quite as well. And there's some evidence that there's actually some interference going on, that early exposure can have some at least short-term negative consequences for subsequent learning. So no one's saying, well, I won't say no one. I'm not saying that we should, you have to forbid young children in this digital age from ever being exposed to, to visual media until they're two, three, or five years of age. I know some parents who try to do this. It's tough. And children are growing up in a digital age. They need to be competent uh, with digital uh, media. Uh, but too much of it, particularly at the expense of more one-on-one, person-to-person interaction, uh, can have some detrimental effects. Early, earlier is not always better. Mm-hmm. So, and because we're, uh, you mentioned social media and other digital media, uh, because now with this pandemic, we are most of the time at home. Do you think that it could be having any negative effects on child on children's development? Oh yeah, um, it can. It can have negative. The pandemic uh, can have an, is having negative effect on a lot of people's lives. It's highly variable, however. Uh, so. Uh, Across the globe, in weird societies, there are a lot of people who really weren't greatly affected. They still were able to go to work. Maybe they're working from home. Uh, they are in a household with several people, so they're not totally so, so socially isolated. Uh, they have access to the internet and social media so they can stay in touch. And it's not the same, you know, but it's not so terrible. There are other people who uh, lose their jobs, lose their incomes mm-hmm. because uh, they are maybe living alone or with someone that they don't know all that well uh, or don't get along with quite well or they have to expose themselves and have the stress of being exposed to people who may have COVID and, and they're not doing as well. The incidence of alcoholism is and opioid use in the U.S. has increased over the last year. You know, these are are not good signs. Same with children. Some children, children who are certainly going to be affected broadly. Uh, part of it is the lack of interaction with other children. Um, but some are going to be more affected than others. In terms of learning, those who have someone at home that can help them with their online learning, who have good internet connections, um, and are going to schools that have teachers who know how to use social media, uh, for for teaching, their education is going to be not as adversely affected as children who don't have someone at home with them to help them keep them on task, who don't have reliable internet connection. You know, part of it is the haves and have-nots, as always. Um, in terms of social interaction, I think um, uh, it's tough for kids of all age. All kids need social interaction. Children are resilient, however, and especially if they can be online and Zooming with some friends every now and then. Maybe they get together with other kids who are in their bubble, uh, you know, which, which some kids have done uh, safely, others not so safely. Uh, this can be a benefit. Other kids don't, don't, don't have this. Uh, children who were high stress beforehand are probably going to be affected more adversely. So yes, this pandemic and the consequences of it are going to have negative effects on children, 
but it's going to be greater for some children than others. I don't think there's a, it's it's going to it's not going to be like children who experience a war and deprivation where everyone gets affected uh, pretty harshly. Um, some are going to be affected more so than others. Mm -hmm. So one last question, since we're talking about mismatches, do you think we can learn anything from more traditional hunter-gatherer societies which supposedly represent the ones or are closer to the ones we evolved in, uh, in how to deal with these evolutionary mismatches? I mean, things that we can apply in our modern society. Oh, I think so. Uh, a number of theorists, uh, Melvin Cotter in particular, Peter Gray, among others, have proposed that hunter-gatherer societies and parenting in, in, in development should be the, the model. This is, this is how children, our ancestors developed. This should, this should be what childhood you know, was evolved to be. And we can use these insights to produce better, healthier environments for our children to grow up in. And so I, I think that's, that's certainly true. We, we're not hunter-gatherer societies, however. So we have to keep in mind that um, in hunter-gatherer societies, children have very few options. Either you become a hunter-gatherer like your mother and father are, or you die. You know, so there's, there's a lot of mo motivation for kids to learn on their own. Uh, we don't, if that's not the case in, in, in modern culture. Modern culture, much learning is done out of context. Uh, you know, you're taught to read, you're taught mathematics. Uh, almost everything was done, learning was done in context, through play, through observation, in hunter-gatherer cultures. Can we have more hands-on learning experiences that are consistent with, with hunter-gatherer um, childhoods, maybe that'll be beneficial educationally. Yes, maybe so. Um, but it doesn't mean that, that uh, the teaching is out the window, um, that uh, we can just let kids educate themselves, so to speak. We have to at least provide the structure that education can occur in. And then different theorists and different contents can be instructed, discovered, uh, and, and in different ways uh, by, by children. Um, knowing the social nature of humans and how we develop friendships and learn to cooperate uh, in ancient environments can be very useful in, in fostering social development and, and cooperation and contemporary development as well. Again, you know, we've got to keep in mind we're not hunter-gatherers. But yes, I, I think in many ways, understanding our evolved tendencies and their tendencies are not absolute we can develop we can learn to read and do calculus you know which our ancestors had no notion of at all we have the flexibility to do that um, but we still have these evolved features of how we learn best at different ages and so i think um, we can learn a lot from hunter gatherers got to be careful you you, were, you you expressed it quite accurately, hunter-gatherers, but sometimes people view uh, just traditional environments with hunter-gatherer environments. Hunter-gatherer environments were, were very, what, what David Lancey calls neotocracies. Uh, they, they emphasized um, children. You know, they, they were very loving and very tolerant. 
in many traditional cultures, not hunter-gatherers, but horticulturists, fishing cultures, early agricultural societies, children were often treated quite harshly. Uh, and um, we don't want to emulate those. We modern folk are in many ways more like uh, neotocracies. Uh, we, but we sometimes may overprotect our children, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, and we need to give the opportunities to, as in hunter-gatherer societies, explore, test the limits a little bit, usually through play, interaction, usually with older peers or younger peers, mixed age groups. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the book is again, how children invented humanity, the role of development in human evolution. Uh, just before we go, would you like to mention any other sources on the internet or elsewhere where people can find your work? No, I really don't have much of a uh, social media uh, <laughs> presence. I'm, I'm afraid I, I don't uh, tweet uh, or blog. Um, maybe I should. Uh, yet with the, 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 the 21st century, but maybe that's a little bit of the hunter-gatherer in me still. Uh, so, but thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> no, it's been my pleasure, and thank you for writing the book, by the way. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you for asking me to, to talk about it. Uh, hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting it on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. This show is brought to you by people like you, so consider doing it. Otherwise, and if you like the interview, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Pauline Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, George Spigny, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omer Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslo Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo. Ethan Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazevsky, Max Belby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz. My producers is Arweba, Jim, Frank, Lucas, Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codreano, Luis Caetano, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardos France, and Nirvan Balachandran. And my executive producers, Michel Rogeski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.